For great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts, the TNT Shop is now open at tntradio.live. Taking no prisoners, this is Unleashed with Mark Morano on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Good evening, good afternoon, good morning. Welcome to Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. All right, breaking news, and I have a whole bunch today on electric vehicles. Hertz rental car to sell 20,000 EVs and shift back to gas-powered cars. This is one of the largest global uh, rental car companies in the world is planning to sell a third of its U.S. electric vehicle fleets and reinvest in gas-powered cars due to, are you ready for this, weak demand. Surprise, surprise, people don't want to rent an electric car, especially in a strange location where you don't have your, oh, I have a charging station here, I can go home, I can memorize this, I have to be careful on my route. When they travel, business travel, vacation, not happening. So due to weak demand, they're laying off a third of their cars and drum roll high repair costs because of the battery options so there you have it one of the largest rental car companies in the world selling off a third 20,000 evs uh in the united states weak demand high maintenance costs and this very topic was brought up uh yesterday when i was on stuart varney on Fox News, and I wanted to play this clip because then I'm going to go through it and I'm going to break this apart in a couple segments. But I really wanted you to understand what's happening with uh, the gas-powered cars. So this is clip one. I, he opens up by throwing a curveball at me about the hottest year temperature. So that'll be in here as well. I'll address that when we come back. Let's go ahead and play clip one, and you'll see what's going on with electric cars and the motivations behind it, the regulatory aspect. The Environmental Protection Agency will hold a hearing on California's EV mandate. That mandate basically bans the sale of new gas cars by 2035. Climate guy Mark Marano is with us this morning. Mark, uh, I'm a contrarian question. We hear that last year, 2023, was the hottest year ever on record. So what's wrong with banning gas-powered cars by 2035? Well, first of all, if you want to get the hottest year on record is pretty much declared almost every year, every other year. It's based on hundreds or tenths of a degree difference, many times within the margin of error of the data set. And even the NASA former head global warming scientist said it's a political statement. It's meant to create fear, meant to push politics like an EV ban. And if you were actually worried about climate change, the last thing you would think of is EVs are the solution. It takes half a million pounds of materials, including raw earth materials, to make one average size Tesla battery. Uh, EVs dig the earth, and not in a groovy 1970s Brady Bunch way, Stuart, but I mean they dig the earth deeply with emissions, with environmental standards, and we're farmed all of that out to the countries with the worst human rights and environmental standards. China, and of course, Chinese-owned factories in Africa with underage kids. So even if you're concerned about global warming, EVs aren't the answer. That's the way I opened up. Now, Stuart Varney has a great sense of humor, and it was a fun segment to do. And I think he really appreciates uh, what I'm bringing to the show, because what I'm trying to do, this is a Fox business audience. It's a Wall Street audience. You notice I'm not, they don't even show full screen with guests. It's all about the latest stocks and everything else. 
because everyone's interested in the green investments and the green economy, the Inflation Reduction Act here in the United States, pumping hundreds of billions of dollars, picking winners and losers. So Wall Street's very interested because they want to make money. And what better way to make money than off the backs of the U.S. taxpayers with unelected bureaucrats, corporate government collusion, lobbyists and lawyers picking the winners and losers? It's it's brilliant. And now I did, first of all, on the hottest year, if you go to Climate Depot today, I have multiple articles up and analysis. And if you go to my Stuart Varney link, I have articles embedded in there as well. You can follow the links. CNN, others are claiming it's the hottest in 125,000 years. Utter nonsense. Peer-reviewed studies are showing it. It was warmer. They don't have the records to show that. And as I mentioned there, this has been going on now for about a decade and a half. Every year is considered the hottest year on record. What they don't tell you is that the heat wave record in the United States here, for example, 75% of all temperature heat heat records were broken before 1950. The 1930s heat wave here in the United States during the Dust Bowl era was about 10 times worse than anything we're experiencing. We now have a professor from Texas A&M who wants to, quote, get rid of the EPA 1930s heat wave chart. Uh, and And they also have massive analysis on my site today from scientists looking at how all of these temperature adjustments they're making in the past, they're cooling the past, warming the present to get a, a unprecedented heat today. And of course, we've only had thermometer records since about 1850, 1870. And the United States, sad to say, or good to say, has the best thermometer records. And we know from just looking at that, particularly the raw unadjusted, that there's no way this is the record hottest ever, and certainly not 120,000 years. It's just nonsense. We also know that the medieval warm period was as warm or warmer. We know that from the UN report before Michael Mann came in and erased it. And by the way, we had a a scientist testify at the US Senate when I worked there about getting, quote, we had to get rid of the medieval warm period. We also know there's peer-reviewed studies showing the Roman warming period around zero AD to be warmer than today, or certainly as warm or warmer. So that that whole thing is nonsense. In terms of what this is about, in the United States, we have some cockamamie court precedent and regulations that the Biden administration is trying to push through. Basically, they are trying to have California make national policy when it comes to EVs. And that is clip two. Let's watch as I explain this. Seward Varney asked me about it, and I explain that because this is key. This is another example of how we don't get a say. Unelected Gavin Newsom gave an executive order. California uh, Air Resources Board followed up on getting rid of gas-powered cars, banning gas-powered cars. And then about 18 states have trigger laws following it. And then Biden's EPA is putting in all these regulations to ban gas-powered cars, including high corporate average fuel economy standards. So let's go with clip two, and we'll get in this a little deeper. But if they accept California's mandate, that rapidly becomes a national yep. mandate, doesn't it? It'll be adopted by all the other states, almost inevitably. Uh, that, that would mean we, yes, I, this I, country will ban gas cars by 2035. I mean, do you really see that happening? Well, I see a, a major collision coming and a battle here. I worked when I was in the United States Senate Environment Public Works Committee as a, as a staffer, not a senator. Uh, we dealt with this California waiver. The Trump administration dealt with this. It's back again. What this basically says is California is going to be granted the right to set federal vehicle transportation policy. That's what this is. That's what the California waiver is in layman's term is we're going to let Governor Gavin Newsom dictate the future of gas powered cars. This has to be stopped. It's 
unlawful. We need to have consumers make this choice. The whole idea, I think, was the Honda EV concept you just showed. We should be excited about new technology, but instead people are like, wait a minute, they're banning the competition. If these EVs are so great, why do you ban the competition? Same is true with solar and wind. Why do we ban coal, oil, gas, restrict it, ration it in order to have the winner, which is politically selected? Mm. And that's the bottom line is consumer choice and what makes sense logically. And this doesn't make sense logically, even when you look at it from a climate obsessed way. And that is the key point we're trying to make here. They've taken out democracy, corporate government collusion. I've gone through this. Uh, and if you go to my website, corp the World Bank Former President Nicholas Stern at a World Bank meeting said the gas-powered car might be defunded at the automaker level. In other words, banks aren't going to give out you know, money and financing for automakers and to get capital to even build gas-powered cars. We have corporate banks led by one in Australia who wants to actually get not, uh, ban car loans for people buying a gas-powered car. You have cities in Colorado and California banning the creation of new gas stations, the building of new gas stations. So even if you still have a used old gas car, they're talking about uh, gas station rationing and limiting on that. And think about that. So it's hard enough to find a charging station for your EV. And they want to do they want to basically duplicate that, make driving a gas powered car, if you still have one, miserable by limiting the number of gas stations. And by the way, that's part of a national climate emergency in a lot of countries is to start limiting people's odd even gas days and the availability of cars limiting your freedom of movement very very scary stuff one other key breaking news this is from fortune magazine this just out this morning china set to overtake japan as the world's top auto exporter Hmm. We've already reported on this show on, on Unleashed TNT and on my website, Climate Depot, that China's already overtaking the U.S. and South Korea, now Japan, and it's going to become number one. All of these green mandates, particularly EV mandates, solar wind, all they do is empower China. If it's, it's almost as if we wanted to say, here you go, China, we want to rely on you completely. We want to be dependent upon you for all the rare earth mining, for the chips, for the production, for cheap labor, for all our goods and services. Um, this is where we're headed. So this is on Fortune Magazine. There's a new king of the global auto market, according to Fortune. The global shift to electric cars signified by companies like Tesla, Tesla has helped China's car makers potentially reach two important milestones, unseating once dominant players in unnerving legacy automakers in Europe, Japan, and the US. There you go. And by the way, the EU is considering uh, tariffs on Chinese made cars. That's how desperate they're getting. They're going into protectionist tariffs. This is insane. And we have an economist coming on, James Carter, later in the program. We're going to ask him about the idea of doing tariffs and how we actually, how you, how you not only protect legacy automakers, but it's not really about you know protecting them. It's more about how you protect consumers and our freedom of movement. And I'm going to ask him as, if, as in terms of free trade. I don't you know is free trade. Uh, yeah, one problem or aspects of that a problem, but obviously the other is we're shooting ourselves in the foot with these mandates. Okay, this third part, this is clip three now. Well, actually, wait, uh, before we go to clip three, I wanted to play you uh, clip, uh, this will be clip four, net zero, China's coal transporting railway. So one of the things China does is they're the le world's leader in coal production, fossil fuel, CO2 emissions, and they're using their massive economic power and their massive investment in fossil fuels, two coal plants a week by some of the estimates, to make 
the EV components, to make the solar and wind components. So this is a fraud that we're, we're going net zero by farming all of our emissions out to China. And this is clip uh, five. This gives you an idea of what China's up to with coal production. And there you have it. Now, obviously, for those of you just listening, it was an image showing you how China is is building the coal production and they're having ways to transport it. Unbridled is, I guess, the best phrase to describe the development occurring in China as they laugh their asses off at the rest of us. We have to meet net zero. We have to farm out more to China. Let's make China the number one automaker. Let's make China the number one rare earth mining company. Let's make China the number one economy. Let's make China the number one producer of goods and services. This is where we're headed. But we're virtuous and green, and that's all the people think about. That's what they're thinking about. Okay, the the next, the final clip from Stuart Varney on Fox yesterday was him asking me about this, this electric bus mandate now. So we have school kids here, and they're now going to force them into electric school buses as though it hasn't been tried. So here's Stuart Varney asking me about the electric school buses. Uh, related story. The administration has announced a $1 billion plan to provide green school buses to districts across the country. Yes. Okay, you're laughing, so you don't think it's a good investment? Well, I think even even the corporate media like Washington Post, which is run by Jeff Bezos, which is pushing these kind of electric vehicles, they couldn't even spin this successfully. In the article that the Washington Post is promoting, they're talking about years of infrastructure to even power this green electric bus fleet. Plus, we have recent history. Sweden had to shelve theirs because of cold weather. They weren't operating. Philadelphia spent some upwards of 20 million plus, and their buses eventually disappeared due to maintenance issues. They are forcing a energy transition on the public and on our infrastructure and our country that's just not ready. They haven't worked out even half the bugs yet. This is just another example. And it's due to this Inflation Reduction Act, which will pump out billions of dollars in federal mandate subsidies for decades into the future, unlike Obama's stimulus, which expired after a few years. So everything looks successful initially when you have all the startups. Wow, look at this record profits, investors, green, green money coming in. It's because it's the illusion of prosperity from the government selecting these winners and losers electric buses aren't going to do but the only thing electric buses will do is make virtual learning come back for students as they won't be able to get to school and then once the buses collapse the grid virtual learning won't even exist because they'll have a blackout uh, and california is very uh, well known for the blackouts well, i had a little fun there i mean i felt like yeah, he was being the straight man and i was trying to be a comic there but here, I wanted to read from you, expand a little bit. I referenced the Washington Post couldn't even spin this electric school bus mandate uh, in their Jeff Bezos owned paper, who, by the way, is now either surpassing or very close to Bill Gates as the crown holder for America's single largest farmland owner. 
what is Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon, buying up farmland for? We'll, we'll do a show on that eventually. Okay. This is according to the Washington Post article on the EV school buses, quote, from the Washington Post. The electric buses suck an enormous amount of power from the grid, a concern for districts that don't get enough federal funding to buy 20 to 25 buses and don't have the infrastructure to deliver that much electricity. Reminds me, I did a segment on Fox about a month ago where basically this Inflation Reduction Act, which I've referenced, hundreds of billions of dollars, decades into the future, just the money just, it's a money priming pump of just corruption and greenwashing that we've never seen in America. As bad as we've been, we've never seen anything like this. This, the, the story that we, I did a month ago was that in California, they're getting so much of this green money that they don't have enough bureaucrats to spend it. The money's literally just piling up in California unspent. And California has to, ha has to actually go out and hire a bunch of bureaucrats and, and government officials for, to spend and figure out ways to spend all this money that's only earmarked to green projects, which are going to end up making our grid less reliable, less energy, ration energy, and make costs of energy go up. It's just you couldn't write something this insane. Okay. This is according to Washington Post on this electric buses. Utility companies interviewed by the EPA inspector general said delays in, the, in electric buses have resulted from a shortage of high voltage transmitter and the need to run additional power lines. One company said it could take nine months to two years to complete construction. In other words, these are more government mandates that literally they can't even, the kids aren't going to be driving in electric buses. It's not happening because they can't do it because if they did, they don't have the they don't have the infrastructure to even set it up and build it, and that's where I wanted to mention. Uh, I, I referenced in this uh, on the show Sweden, and I wanted to read you what Sweden is doing because I referenced this briefly. It's this is as of January fifth, two thousand twenty-four, just a couple like a week ago. It's too cold for electric buses in Sweden. The electric buses canceled as Sweden experiences the coldest weather this century. As you might have heard, we're still waiting on global warming in Sweden. We just had the coldest temperature this century. This is according to Peter Amelson, a reporter in Sweden. Back in 2006, they warned that people would have forgotten what snow is like. But anyway, it goes on and it says the electric buses will be removed from traffic because they have very difficult time keeping warm when in service. And it's clear the electric buses are affected the most by the extreme cold. So they're removing them from service in Sweden. And we're talking about some really cold places in the United States to have this as well. And the other one was Philadelphia that I referenced on Fox on Varney. Glimpse of the future goes bust. This is from uh, just uh, two years ago. Philadelphia's entire electric bus fleet has disappeared. $24 million squandered on 25 low CO2 buses now deemed unusable. Uh, and this was this it goes on. This, these were mandates that were done, you know, five years ago. They put all this money in and they just realized, you know, this isn't workable. But hey, guess what? $24 million that goes to the government at all levels, the bureaucrats, it goes to lobbyists, it goes to lawyers, it goes to the green tech firms who get investors, they get payouts. Hey, they can declare bankruptcy later. It's an LLC. They don't have to worry about any personal bankruptcy. They collect these big millions and tens of millions in federal dollars, in some cases, billions or half billions. And then they, 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 they build up a bunch of stuff and it looks impressive. Like here's our fleet of buses. 
They'll never even never even get it put into use. And it doesn't matter. And these companies eventually go bankrupt, but it doesn't matter because all the investors made their money. All the politicians got this virtue signal and all of the uh, media got to praise the politicians who passed it. And everyone, all the young people are like, yes, we're doing something about climate. Maybe we won't see the EPA after all because they're pumping all this money into these worthless projects. This is where we are. This is our future if we allow it. So unbelievable that this is still going on and it's gonna to continue to go on because of this Inflation Reduction Act. And it is just, you know, I don't know, I don't know how else to say it, but it's nuts, it's crazy, and it's just not gonna stop. Okay, uh, I did have a clip I wanted to play you. This is from a couple of days ago. Uh, it was me on Ali Beth Stuckey of The Blaze Show explaining what the Great Reset is all about. And everything I just said is all a huge component of the Great Reset. And it also implies China. So let's play this clip. Uh, me on Ali Beth Stuckey's show on Blaze TV. Great Reset, the World Economic Forum, this whole agenda is to make it so we have no choice on some of the biggest questions of our lives. But all of this is happening because at these meetings like the World Economic Forum and the United Nations, they meet and they work with government corporate collusion to bypass democracy. And then simple sentence, the Great Reset is basically making the once free West copy the same model as China, one party Chinese authoritarian rule. That is the Great Reset. They bypass democracy and impose stuff through this corporate government fascism. And we get, we get told what's happening. We don't get to vote on it. There's no hearings in Congress. There's no town halls. There's no switchboards lighting up for a big vote. None of it. We're just told that the car is gone. Your meat eating's going. Yeah. We're creating we're creating energy shortages. You sorry, you need a vaccine to go into this place. Sorry, your schools are closed. Sorry, your churches are closed. What? Huh? How did that happen? The great. And that's really a summation of it. And again, I'll repeat the key line: the Great Reset, as simply stated is the once free West emulating one party authoritarian rule China under the auspices of emergency declarations, 9-11, COVID, coming climate emergency. You can suspend all forms of democracy because we're in an emergency and we have to do something about it. So this is Unleashed with Mark Moran. When we come back, we're gonna be joined by economist James Carter, uh, and you won't want to miss this. We're going to go through a whole series of issues about the insanity of this. We're going to actually talk a little bit about China and trade as well, but but particularly about budget, how we're shooting ourselves in the foot with all of this wasteful spending. This is Unleashed on TNT with Mark Morano. We'll be right back after these messages. TNT Radio's Kate Shimarani. Don't stop taking prescription medication. Always go and see your indoctrinated GP, always. But with psychiatric drugs, you have to actually wean off them. They're very addictive and you have to wean off them. Now, I find find all this really concerning. But what I cannot get my head around is the worst drug of all, they just let it on the market all the time. Sugar, 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 sugar. And then that's not even to bring in like MSG, monosodium glutamate. And and I, if, I, I can say, you know, you go into one of these garages and you see all the people going for food, there's nothing to eat in there. I very rarely can find anything to eat in any of these places. And if you go into the supermarket, there's only the first two aisles that have got real food. The rest, it, it's not food and I see what people buy. I've covertly actually filmed people's trolleys, not them, don't get all excited, but I have filmed trolleys uh, to have a look what people are buying. And it's shocking because what you eat determines what your brain's going to be like and your teenagers' brains do not stop developing till they're about 25 years of age. Kate Shimarani on TNT Radio. The challenges our planet's animals are facing 
sometimes feel a bit heavy. The animals haven't eaten in a day, two days. They haven't drank anything. They're cold, they're dehydrated. As soon as we started our descent, everywhere I could see was mud. Just absolutely mud. The country has been in prolonged for drought so long. It was like a tinderbox waiting to go up. Okay, very heavy. Each of us wants to be part of the solution. And we can be. Remember that there's good happening right now. At home. All right, we were able to get into your unit and we have all four of your cats. So, uh... Uh, okay. And around the world. For any animal in any disaster. So let's focus on that, right? Be part of the solution. One rescue at a time. Search ifa.org forward slash disaster ready. So many people who had no history of heart illnesses have got it now or blood clotting after the COVID-19 vaccination. Punish those who hurt people with COVID madness. Lighting the fuse for freedom. TNT Radio. Welcome back to Unleashed with Mark Morano. All right. Well, joining us now is Jim Carter. He's with Americans uh, Prosperity, the America First Policy Institute of that. And recently, he was his work was featured at Capitol Hill. Uh, welcome to the program, uh, uh, James or Jim? What's that? Uh, Jim. Jim. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for joining Unleashed here on TNT. Okay. Well, your area is economics, federal spending, budgets. I understand that the House Budget Committee recently featured some of your work. Uh, an article, uh, actually, that you wrote about how three misguided beliefs are threatening America's future. Tell us a little bit about that, what the House Budget Committee did, and tell us what those three misguided beliefs are that are threatening America. And I would say the same problems apply to many other parts of the world as well. Sure. And thanks for having me on today. I appreciate it. Sure. But Thank you. I uh, published uh, on Sunday, and... Um, the first misguided belief is the fact uh, that, that that the federal government can spend what it wants, it can do what it wants, because it's just monopoly money. In fact, um, <clears throat> I came across a video of a former chairman of the House Budget Committee uh, caught on tape saying these very things, saying that, yes, we can spend what we want, we can do what we want, it's just monopoly money, we never have to pay this money back. And of course... That's why we're on the verge of spending, you know, six point four trillion dollars this year. It's, it's mind blowing. Now, and, and think of this: you know, six point four trillion dollars is a number no one can grasp, but that works out to about two hundred and four thousand dollars per second. So count to five: one, two, three, <laughs> four, five. <laughs> In those five seconds, the federal government spent more than a million dollars. Yeah, uh, all because of this. The sense that oh, it's just monopoly money. We can do what we want. We can spend what we want. It doesn't matter. So right, well, and that, yeah, that's that's number one. Okay, and that's um, is that part of what what they call modern monetary theory, where it's kind of like you don't even need to raise taxes. You just print up as much money, and money is a great stimulus to the economy, and we'll just keep spending and spending. We saw Obama do this big time when he was president, and of course Joe Biden did it. We saw it with the COVID relief. I think that was the f philosophy behind it. But can you? How does that fit into this whole idea, modern monetary theory, uh, which you hear a lot about? I don't think a lot of people understand quite what it is. If you want to maybe explain that a little bit as well. Yes, well, that's it exactly. In fact, the chairman uh, who was caught on tape saying these things actually referenced modern monetary theory. Um, right. it, basically, 
idea that we print our own money. We have we, we have a, so a sovereign currency. And so if we're shorts, we'll just print up some more. Uh, um, and, uh, and of course, but isn't that you know, good? COVID. They used to have to raise taxes on us. Now they don't. They just print more money. We should be happy. They're not hitting us with higher taxes, right? <laughs> well, of course, we can't spin straw into gold or uh, print <laughs> and, uh, paper because you know, ultimately uh, a, a dollar is really just, um, uh, it, it represents resources. And you can't just print dollars for resources that don't exist. What we need are policies that promote prosperity, that promote real economic growth, um, which actually leads to my second uh, uh, misguided belief. Um, now, sure. uh, this year, uh, Congress will tackle a number of expiring tax provisions. Back, back in 2017, right. uh, Congress passed the uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and had some very good pro-growth uh, policies uh, in place, but those are expiring. So Congress is trying to decide, okay, do we extend these? Do we not extend these? What's the deal? Uh, the, the folks who do not want us to extend these policies say, well, it'll cost trillions of dollars. Now, I take exception to the word cost because tax policies don't cost anything. Uh, and taxes are merely one means of extracting resources from the private sector for the government's use. Uh, maybe you, you you tax a little less, a borrow a little more. Um, but uh, the cost occurs when, actually, when spending occurs. Federal spending is a cost. Taxes do not cost. Uh, Mark Twain has this great line, which uh, I included in the piece, I, and, and I have to paraphrase slightly, but he said, you know, uh, uh, the, uh, um, there's a, a huge difference between uh, the uh, close to the right word and the right word. He said the difference is between lightning bugs and lightning. So, you know, cost is not the right word. It should not be part of this debate. And the fact that we're calling a tax change a cost skews the debate in a way that actually leads to worse outcomes uh, policy-wise. Well, let's go back. When when Donald Trump did this, this was under, I guess, Larry Kudlow was there uh, at the White House. That was 2017. That ended up leading to, if I recall, the, the even I remember it was, uh, I think it was either someone at CNN, one of their anchors, uh, I don't know if it was Chris Cuomo or if it was um, the other, another major anchor, but they actually said, this is one of the greatest economies we've had. CNN was forced to admit that. And we had the record low black and Hispanic unemployment. And we had probably just, the, and we had for the first time since Harry Truman was president, uh, under Trump, we had more energy production than consumption, more energy uh, exports than imports. Uh, we were truly getting to that point, that that oft-fabled political goal of being energy independent. We were almost energy dominant. So uh, do you credit all that with the tax cuts? And then also John, John F. Kennedy did these tax cuts to stimulate the economy, and also Ronald Reagan did. Uh, I think the, the knock on Reagan was the deficits came after, but that's because he couldn't control the spending, both domestically or even um, you know, militarily spending went way up as well. So the, the flaw there was that, but even under the Reagan, those tax cuts worked. Why is there such opposition to tax cuts uh, just in Washington in general? Well, there's a lot there, uh, um, what, what you just said. So um, I credit the good economy that we had uh, going into the pandemic to the combination of good tax policy and good Policy, uh, good energy policy and regulatory policy. I mean, yeah. uh, one of the best things President Trump did was sign Executive Order 13771. What that did was say, for every new regulation we put on the books, we're going to get rid of two regulations. 
Um, so it, it was very deregulatory. Um, yes. And uh, it, it works. This administration has gone in the opposite direction. They've piled on more regulations. Yes. Uh, burdening uh, hundreds of billions of dollars with uh, uh, hundreds of millions of additional man hours uh, towards paperwork. Um, and uh, it, it, it's not good. Uh, we need to go back to the policies we had just a few years back. Uh, and, and they worked, as you said. We, we had a growing economy. We had low inflation. Inflation is 1.4% uh, year over year when uh, Joe Biden took office. And of course, then it rose to 9.1%. Um, it is... It has uh, uh, come down somewhat. It's, it's in the 3% range now. But the damage is done. The price level has already been increased. I mean, we, we had uh, more than twice as much inflation in you know, two and a half years under Biden than we had in four years of Trump. Um, but the damage is done. Um, well, let me ask you, uh, just to criticize Republicans, I remember Trump's first budgets. He was coming in with huge cuts in EPA and all these other departments, but they were pretty much dead on arrival, if I recall correctly, with the Republican Congress. Why do Republicans have trouble getting spending under control? And even you know, and with Republican Congressers, at least this time around, you can't say that was true back in '94 when Gingrich took over, because remember we had balanced budgets under Bill Clinton's second term. It was pretty amazing. But why did Republicans not go with any you know, restrained spending during the Trump years? Well, I, I, I point to two things. Uh, first of all, uh, yes, um, the GOP held the House and the Senate and the White House for the first two years of President Trump's term. But if you don't have 60 votes in the Senate, you really don't have right. full control. Um, so you have the appearance of control, but not actual control. I mean, yes. you are there as committees and, and, and you set what goes on on the floor. But uh, uh, with the filibuster, you, you, you just can't impose what it is you want to impose. Um, and secondly, um, we have a budget process. And in fact, this year is the 50th anniversary of the, of the budget process we have today that was um, instituted in the era of ABBA and bell bottoms, okay? N nothing <laughs> yeah. for a century. It's, 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 it's dysfunctional. And I served, well, I worked in the office management budget. I worked in treasury. I, yeah. I was on the Senate budget staff for three years, and I saw up close and personal just how dysfunctional this budget process is. Well, it, 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 it is my first misguided belief. It points out there's no sense of scarcity. Um, and Thomas Sowell has this great line, and I have to paraphrase again. He said the, the, the first law of economics is scarcity. There's not enough of, of, of everything to go around. The first law of politics is to ignore the first law of economics. Uh, <laughs> That's great, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what we need to do is change the process reintroduce the concept of scarcity and encourage a thoughtful uh, a, a, a discussion or a weighing of alternatives and priorities. Uh, today, it's just pigs at the trough. Uh, that's all we have. Well, well, you have the omnibus bills. And then there has a question. Is the line item veto? That never happened, right? That's always something that was talked about. But would a line item veto help? And would ending these omnibus bills where it's sort of up or down on everything thrown into one giant mess? So the line item veto actually was passed uh, back during the Clinton administration, but then the yeah, court struck used? it. A oh, court struck uh, it. I knew there was something. I couldn't remember. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think President Clinton used it once. Um, it's been so long ago. Don't quite recall, but it was struck down. Uh, I, I think, however, um, that a, a total rethink of the budget process is in order, just not a line item veto. I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, we have a, a debt ceiling uh, in the United States. Uh, it was imposed back in, in 1917, and if the purpose was to limit the debt, 
um, well, it's not really doing its job now, is it? We have a $34 trillion yeah. debt now. Um, so I've, I've argued that we should get rid of the debt ceiling in its place, put in uh, something along, this, uh, along the lines of the Swiss debt break. In 2003, the Swiss changed the constitution uh, and basically said that the, um, that the central government's spending can't grow faster than revenue over the course of the business cycle. So, of course, you know, uh, in downturns, you'll have a deficit. Um, but when you're not in, in a downturn, you know, uh, 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 things can get back um, to where they should be. And guess what? The impact has been, has been wonderful in Switzerland. Uh, their uh, spending growth uh, slowed. Uh, their debt as a share of GDP fell. Um, and I think the United States would uh, benefit by having something along those lines as well. Okay. Right. And what's the misguided belief, the third misguided belief? I don't, we haven't mentioned that yet. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, well, the third one, well, Moody's recently cut um, the, the federal government's credit outlook from, from stable to negative. Uh, uh, but people say we have plenty of time to clean up this mess. <clears throat> plenty of time. Uh, well, we don't. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, we're already starting to feel the bites of, uh, the, of these uh, expensive policies we've had. So uh, given the combination of higher inflation and interest rates, we've seen a huge ramp up in, uh, uh, in interest costs on the federal debt. Last year alone, we saw an increase of spending on interest by $176 billion. That, that was about a 33% increase. So we're, we're now spending about $710 billion annually on interest on the debt, $710 billion. Um, and uh, given the current projections, that rises within the budget window to $1.44 trillion. That's mind-blowing. It's, it's certainly mind-blowing. A, a few years ago, I, I did a, a, a paper called The Debt Curve from Hell that looks yeah. at, uh, at, at, at these interest costs. And what happens is it, it's a death spiral. You know, we have a deficit, which means we pay uh, uh, more interest and build more debt, pay more interest, which raises the deficit, which just spirals. So we have larger and larger deficits, larger and larger interest payments, and larger and larger debt. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's a process we need to break. Wow. Well, I've asked other economists this question, but it seems like the only period of the last 50 years that we could look at and say, wow, that was done correctly, or we had, let's put it this way, we had good results, was Bill Clinton's second term, say 97, 98, 99. We had budget surplus, somewhat restrained spending, welfare reform. How do we duplicate that? How did that happen, first of all? And how do we duplicate that and get that back to where we are now? Sure. Well, the key was we had five years of 4% growth, 4% um, growth for over for five years in a row, um, which is what, where we need to be again. Uh, ultimately, growth alone won't solve our budget woes, but, but growth, economic growth is essential. We, we, we won't fix our, our budget problem without growth. Um, and uh, you know, the, well, it's, it's a combination of things. I mean, uh, part of it is you know just bad policy. You know, for instance, the American uh, Rescue uh, Act that Joe Biden signed into law in March of 21 literally had provisions that that incentivize people to stay out of the labor force. Um, th that's not what we need. We need people in the labor force because ultimately economic growth is a combination of, of getting people in the labor force, providing them with the education and the, and the tools to be productive and then be productive. Um, so policies that encourage work, that encourage investment, um, will ultimately pay off. Um, and, um, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> excuse me. But um, right, we're uh, not getting...
Okay, we have to take a break. We'll be right back. We're talking with uh, Jim Carter of the Center for American Prosperity. We're talking budgets, economic, debt. Uh, I want to ask you a little bit about what we're doing with China with some of our green energy mandates. China, I don't know if you, I just was breaking news today, is just now passing Japan as the world's number one global auto exporter. And it's all due to the West killing ourselves with EV mandates. I mean, not all do, but that's a big factor is that we're basically banning gas powered cars and turning over the global auto industry to China. Um, but anyway, this is Unleashed with Mark Morano. We'll be right back after these messages with Jim Carter. I didn't ask to be thrown in the streets with nowhere to go. I didn't think I'd survive, but I did ask for help and Covenant House was there for me. One in 10 young adults will experience a form of homelessness this year. For these kids who didn't ask to be put in this unthinkable situation, Covenant House is there. Covenant House helped me break the cycle of homelessness in my family. They gave me the love that I needed. Over 2,000 young people will sleep safely in a Covenant House bed tonight. When youth who are experiencing homelessness have a hot meal, a safe place to sleep, medical care, and love, they can overcome heartbreaking challenges and have a brighter future. They just really genuinely just wanted to help me succeed, and I'm succeeding. I'm a, I'm a speaker, I'm an author. Covenant House really helped me and really helped mold me into the woman I am today. If you or someone you love is asking for help, go to safeplacetosleep.org today. I'm Cal Fire Battalion Chief Isaac Sanchez, and normally we like to provide you with tips on how to keep yourselves and your family safe during wildfires. But given the historic impacts that the weather has had on our state this year, we would like to provide you with tips on how to keep yourself safe during extreme weather. If you reside in an area susceptible to flooding, please take the necessary steps to prepare to evacuate if advised. Make sure you've identified at least two exit routes out of your neighborhood as one of them may be blocked or flooded. As the weather develops, remember to check in on vulnerable neighbors and family members. They may need additional time to prepare for evacuation. And just like during a wildfire, if you feel unsafe, please evacuate. You don't have to wait for the order to come. Keep an emergency go bag ready in case you need to evacuate. And always remember to plan for the safety of your pets as well. If you must leave, never drive around roadblocks. It can take as little as 12 inches of water to sweep your vehicle away. And always remember the mantra, turn around, don't drown. Be aware of first responders working in highly impacted areas, especially on the roads. For additional safety tips and updates on CAL FIRE activities, follow us on social media or visit fire.ca.gov. Examining the issues, this is Unleashed with Mark Morano on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to Unleashed uh, on TNT. We're talking with uh, Jim Carter, American Center for American Prosperity. Uh, I just wanted to ask you about a news story today. Uh, this is according to Fortune magazine. China set to overtake Japan as the world's top auto exporter. And it's the, basically the global shift to electric cars uh, has helped China's automaker, car makers potentially reach two milestones, unseating once dominant players and unnerving legacy automakers in Europe, Japan, and the US. The EU is considering uh, tariffs on ja uh, Chinese cars. We have a whole war going on where the US, without a vote of any democracy, this was being done by California, Gavin Newsom, Biden's EPA, unelected bureaucrats, they're crushing the American auto industry. Avis just announced they're getting rid of a third of their rental electric car fleet because there's no consumer demand. No one wants to rent them and because they have high cost. 
How do these green energy mandates play into destroying America? And how do we fight back? And aren't we just handing China global dominance economic on just about any issue you think of, production, manufacturing, mining, because of this green agenda, solar, wind, EV mandates? Uh, what is your comment, first of all, on the green energy causing that in Chinese uh, car dominance now? Well, this uh, green energy focus of this, of this administration is, is really uh, damaging to uh, the economy and our prosperity. Again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm for uh, economic growth and prosperity and policies that get us there. Uh, this, this administration's uh, policies undermine that. Um, and uh, we would, well, be wise to reverse course, certainly, at this point. Um, and then with regard to China, there are those who say, well, in order to compete with China, we need to be more like China. And so we passed that uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, last year. And uh, again, th that was the worst thing we could have done. In order, in order to compete with China, we need to double down on what made America great to begin with, which is you know, limited governments, free markets, private property, uh, and, uh, and, and, and just being America. <laughs> yeah, well, here's a question. Uh, yeah, when you're talking you know, with free trade, uh, yeah, with the EU trying to do tariffs on China. Uh, is free trade, in your view, unequivocal always? Or are there areas where sometimes, I remember it was Reagan's first term, he put, he put tariffs to save Harley-Davidson motorcycles from, I guess, I guess at the time it was Japanese imports. Uh, and a lot of people believe that, you know, because their constitutional tariffs can work. What's your view on that whole debate? Uh, I know there's, there's a certain... Uh, America first, a lot of conservatives are pro-tariffs. And then, of course, a lot of free market economists are absolutely against any kind of protectionism. Where do you stand on that? Um, and you're right. Uh, most economists uh, would argue, uh, myself included, uh, that free trade um, is uh, ultimately what you want. Tariffs can play a role, but only as a tool and not as an end. You know, it, right. If your end goal is just to place tariffs uh, I wouldn't, uh, uh, when I agree with that, but if you use tariffs as a tool to uh, uh, achieve certain ends, that's possible. I mean, China, you know, uh, uh, steals intellectual property. China uh, yeah. does certain things um, that uh, we ought to uh, stop if we can. And uh, tariffs, again, are a tool to hopefully achieve uh, that. But uh, ultimately, you know, unfettered trade uh, is uh, is uh, uh, better for uh, growth and prosperity. Well, let me throw this at you. When you have like the West, we're not really allowed to do much mining, especially for rare earths here in the United States. The mines expensive, labor's expensive. We can't end up, we, we don't end up uh, just being able to get the approval for environmental reasons. So we end up farming that all out to China, Chinese run firms in Africa, the lowest human rights, environmental standards. Is there a point where, uh, you know, it's dangerous to our national security to say we're not going to we're going to rely on foreign sources for chips, for rare earth mining, for national security things? We're allowing China even to come in with with buying up land near military installations. At what point uh, do we say, you know, free trade could be bad with a country like China, who is a potential economic and military adversary? And you make a very good point. Um, as an economist, I look primarily at, at economic efficiency and growth, but the national security uh, aspect is something that we ought not ignore, uh, definitely. 
Okay, yeah, it's, it's always been you know interesting because I you know I always thought I like Pat Buchanan's some of his America First stuff early on. Then he became very big pro labor. By two thousand, he he'd gone off you know a different direction with a lot of his stuff, and he was a big protectionist. But it's interesting how it's come. You know, it's just that those issues have come back up, especially when you see things like the World Economic Forum and UN, and what they're doing is essentially. They're, they're making this, I guess let's talk about next about globalism. What effect is this globalism, if you will, and I'll define it for you. Things like the World Economic Forum, the United Nations, where they basically, some would argue it's corporate government collusion, and they essentially are setting the rules so it's fewer and fewer people at the top laying out this green agenda, which is really an economic centralization. Um, what kind of impact does that have on our growth? I mean, look at what's happened in Europe where they literally were so dependent on Russian sources of energy, and now they're being forced to go back to coal and, and natural gas and do more domestic because their pipelines have been shut off and they're doing sanctions against Russia. Uh, again, it's that national security thing, I guess, again. But, but my question though is, in terms of the globalism, in terms of the, of the of the World Economic Forum, the UN, and this whole agenda of energy and the centralization of economics to save the planet, how do we fight that? And what impact does that have on us when essentially we're not allowed to do stuff, do any of these economic things because they're considered bad for the planet, and we have to get approval for our net zero to to breach net zero goals, or they might violate the UN Paris Climate Accords or something like that. So resources can be uh, allocated uh, one of two ways. Uh, either you have a market system that sets prices and uh, you, know, you have millions and billions of people making decisions uh, in a free market allocating resources, or you have a political system that overrides uh, those market forces and says, no, uh, we're going to allocate these resources this way instead. Uh, as the United States, we should uh, uh, minimize uh, the extent to which we have government overriding markets. Um, markets have and, and freedom have, over the course of you know hundreds of years, uh, shown to be the best way to lead to prosperity. If we want uh, Americans to have you know jobs that pay well and and families that prosper, we need to refocus on freedom and free markets and minimize the government's uh, 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 footprint on this. You know, there's the invisible hand that Adam Smith talked about, and then there's the visible foot of government. Uh, <laughs> I guess so. All right, what about universal basic income? Yeah, there's a huge push for that. Many cities have experimented with it. And the idea, of course, politically, it's a win for politicians because then they get a vote, a class of voters who are dependent on them for literally their guaranteed income. So they're they're never going to vote against the politicians supporting it. But what impact does that have on the economy? And you could argue some of the COVID relief was basically the first major advances in the U.S. government's effort to do um, universal basic income. How destructive is that to spending and economics when you have a universal basic income concept? You know, we shouldn't pay people to not work. Uh, people uh, should be paid to work. Uh, and incentives that say, just stay home, don't work, just uh, it makes us all worse off. Um, <laughs> so, again, I'll give, I'll give an example. So, in the United States, there is the Social Security earnings test. If you uh, yeah. retire before full retirement age and you make some money uh, in, 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 say, a part-time job or even a full-time job, uh, they ding your Social Security benefits. 
um, guess what? That's an incentive for people not to work. And the, the people I'm talking about here are people actually who are experienced. Um, and uh, and uh, so I've argued that we should get rid of the earnings test to allow people to work if they want to. Um, and that would add them to the labor force. So uh, I'm, I'm arguing for just the opposite uh, thing. Yeah. I don't want universal basic income. I want to take away government's restrictions to, uh, that prevent people from working and earning an income and being productive. All right, in the few minutes we have left then, here's the big question. If you look at the US budget since say World War II, obviously we, I think we had the highest percentage of debt right after World War II, right? Because of the, the war yes. costs. But essentially, yeah. the, the, the regulatory state and federal budgets have just only grown. There's been ebbs and flows, you know, maybe Kennedy's tax cuts, Reagan 1981, uh, some restraint, and then, of course, the Republican Congress. Uh, and then it just seems like it seems almost like an, an inexorable march toward bigger government, more regulation, more spending. How optimistic are you we can reverse this? This is... 70 years of U.S. history that it's, you know, other than a few blips, it always sort of the, the cor 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 corrective action always ends up being more spending, more regulations in the end, or we go yin yang. But, you know, it's it's so easy for that to continue because of the sort of the uh, establishment in Washington. What do we do? How, how optimistic are you? And what's the impact in five, 10 years if we don't change course, which is probably we're probably likely not to change course. It depends. I mean, you could have a new administration but it's still long-term. It just seems like we're on the same trajectory. You're right. In fact, uh, Penn Wharton came out with a study uh, last year that said, and I quote, under current policy, the United States has about 20 years for corrective action, after which no amount of future tax increases or spending cuts could avoid the government defaulting on its debt, whether explicitly or implicitly. So P Penn Wharton is saying we have 20 years or less to actually accomplish something. Um, I, I'm, 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 uh, unfortunately, the budget process we have today doesn't give us the tools to actually do yeah. what needs to be. Uh, so I think the first step is to change the budget process and then secondly, get to work because we don't have uh, all that much time, truly. Wow. Well, we're, we're, I think we're out of time here, but thank you for joining us, uh, Jim, uh, Jim Carter with Center for American Prosperity. Uh, I appreciate it. Uh, we have we have to get spending under control, but we, you're right. We need a new process because just having a yin yang and new administration isn't going to change much. This is uh, Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT Radio. Thank you for watching and we'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>